Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. Hey, Light Church. Uh, my name is Benji, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can take that out. If you have something to take notes on, we're going to be spending the next few minutes uh, diving into John chapter 8, continuing our series on life to the full. Uh, but to be honest, I started writing this message two weeks ago. And as I sat back down this week to look over my notes and to prepare for this video, I realized that the world is a different place right now. And so with some rewriting, the biggest thing is I realized as I wrote down the theme of our series, Life to the Full, I just hesitated. I'm like, man, this just seems like an odd uh, series to continue on based on what's going on around our world. But then I realized uh, who wrote this. I realized when it was written and who it was written to. And understanding that they were all facing uncertainty, crisis, persecution. John would later be exiled and lose his life uh, for the sake of the gospel. And so the context that this is written in is very similar, if not more extreme than the one that we're in right now. So I would encourage us not to just put this on the shelf, but rather this is the time to ask ourselves the question, Jesus, what did you mean that you came to give life and life to the full? What does it mean that John wrote his entire gospel so that we would believe in that through belief in Jesus Christ, we would have life? And to know that that is not situational, that's not circumstantial, that that still holds true today no matter what. So as we dive into this, let's just have that sense and expectation that Jesus continues to be the one who gives life and life to the full. So let's go ahead and pray and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you so much um, that we serve and belong to an unshakable kingdom. And Lord, we are keenly aware of that right now as the world seems to have been shaken. God, I pray that you would allow us to step into life, not just mere existence. God, there's so much talk right now about how to exist. But Lord, that's not what you've called us to. You've called us to something more beautiful and more rich. And so God, I pray for every person in here, those who are fearful, those who have experienced loss, those who are experiencing uncertainty, Lord Jesus, would you visit them right now? Holy Spirit, be in every single room, every single car, Lord Jesus, uh, every single person who's observing this, listening to this or watching this. Lord, thank you. You are there with them. You are with each and every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin at the last verse of John chapter 7 and read the first few verses of John chapter 8. Now, if you're reading this in the NIV or certain translations, you will see that this is um, kind of italicized. And the reason for that is because this story, as beloved as it is, does not show up in some of the later manuscripts. And so I read a lot about kind of how theologians work with this passage and what they've kind of come to agreement is this story happened. But the reason why it changes based on the manuscript is not so much if it happened or not, as when it happened. And so I would encourage you, uh, as we look at this, we're going to look at this not so much in the chronological order of this, but there's something about this that speaks to the time and place when most scholars believe this story would have taken place that really colors how we can understand it and how this means so much to us right now in this day and moment. So 
John chapter 7, 53 through John 8 says this. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Uh, I'm going to title this uh, sermon, The Disruption of Mercy. And there's four um, really beautiful descriptions and attributes we see of Jesus in this scenario. Now, we're going to look at this scenario. This is kind of a, a micro uh, crisis, but I think it has a lot of implications for this kind of more macro crisis that all of us are facing right now, as well as the individual struggles that we're facing because of it or just because of life. And so four things we're going to look at. Number one is we're going to look at the calm of Jesus. Number two, we're going to look at the wisdom of Jesus. Number three, the mercy of Jesus. And lastly, we're going to be looking at the shepherd, shepherd's heart that Jesus declares. So the very first thing that catches our attention here is that this is a crazy scenario. Um, temple courts, tons of people. And all of a sudden, this woman caught in the act of adultery is brought by this whole group of men with stones in their hand, yelling, ready to kill her, kind of pegging Jesus into a corner. I mean, this is insane, just the amount of intensity and energy that's going on around this story. And what we see here about Jesus is not frantic, it's not reactive, it's calm. Notice he twice would just bends down to right in the sand takes time and even when he gets up and realizes no one's around he continues his conversation with this woman there is this supernatural peace that Jesus is walking with in the midst of this really intense scenario a um, couple of reasons uh, that we would we kind of recognize this number one it says that Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives now if this is true to the other synoptic gospel writers, this is probably taking place close to Jesus' death and his crucifixion. And what he would do often is he would go to the Mount of Olives. He was staying in Bethany, which is on the other side of the hill. And this is where he would go and spend time in prayer and in relationship and communion with his father. And this story begins with saying he was just there. He was just with his father. And so he comes back into this hectic, intense scenario, and he operates out of a place of calm. And I think that does something for us, because a lot of times we, not only in our own turmoil, but the world around us as we observe it, is lacking peace, it's lacking calm, and understanding that Jesus is the one who brings that. He brings a peace that surpasses understanding. Um, 
Last week, we were in Los Angeles, um, more the, the Glendale area to be exact, and we were going to this mall called the Americana, and it's beautiful. And our super excited to take our kids there. We're going to go eat some sushi. And we're walking along the streets and, and Zoe, our oldest, just begins to express kind of this, this fear and, and this unfamiliarity and it's a busy street. And I'm, I'm realizing that my 11-year-old is unfamiliar with that environment. There's sights and sounds and noises that are creating a sense of turmoil within her. And she's reaching out and she's like, Dad, I don't like this. Can we go back to the car? This just doesn't feel safe. In that moment, I didn't go and make a case that Glendale is the safest city in America. And and I don't know, maybe it is. But as I'm communicating to her, what I'm asking her is not to look around at the circumstances to find safety. I'm saying, look at me. I'm like, Zoe, I'm right here. I'm right with you. You don't have to fear anything. Not because the world isn't chaotic, not because there aren't busy streets and cars going by and people and sights and sounds and stuff you just don't recognize. I'm not telling her to survey the circumstances for her source of peace. I'm saying, look at the proximity of your father. And I think our first point this this morning is understanding the calm that Jesus brings has very little to do with the circumstances that surround us. The calm that Jesus operates in in the middle of storms when he's on a boat has very little to do with the circumstances surrounding his disciples. The calm that Jesus possesses has to do with the proximity to his father. And that proximity to his father is available to us through the Holy Spirit and because of the work of the cross of Christ. that Jesus did. And so I would encourage you, kind of first thing this morning or this afternoon, whenever you're watching this, would you begin to stop looking around to give you peace? Because the reality is it's going to do a poor job. And would you start looking to the closeness of your father to give you that peace and that calm? Secondly, we see that Jesus operates in this story with a ton of wisdom. Now, they, they come and they, the Pharisees think um, that they have trapped Jesus. There is this checkmate, and here's the checkmate. They come and say, hey, the law of Moses says that we have to stone this woman. Now, here's the problem. If Jesus obeys the law of Moses, uh, then he has a problem, two of them. One with Rome, uh, Jewish people were not allowed to provide execution, Um, So he would have been in trouble with Rome. Secondly, his entire ministry is built on compassion. So he would have ruined his ministry. But if he doesn't obey the law of Moses, then he is throwing out the scriptures, which he says he's there to fulfill, not abolish. And so, and on the other end, if he doesn't obey the law of Moses, then people are going to say he's a false prophet. They're not going to believe him, that he's the Messiah. And so the Pharisees are like, man, we've won. There's no way Jesus is going to get out of this. And Jesus does something brilliant. He doesn't dismiss the law of Moses. And he doesn't go and create his own alternative kind of religious system. What he does is he, he starts to, and we, again, we don't know what he's writing on the ground. But a lot of people begin to speculate that maybe what he's writing on the ground is the law of Moses. Now, here, here's one for reference. Deuteronomy 19 says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, 
The two people involved in this dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in the office at that time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. If the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against the fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. So here's, here's the law of Moses says, if there is false witness, if people are bringing an accusation against someone, then what would be said of them would have to be done to them. Um, another theologian thinks that he might have written Exodus 23.1. says, do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Um, or maybe he wrote on Exodus 23.7, says, having nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. And so Jesus, rather than just doing something different, getting out of it, he just says, oh, if you want to talk about the law of Moses, let me remind you what it says. And in this moment, we see this incredible brilliance of Jesus. Now, again, you could just be like, well, he's God. And the reality is, is that's true. He's fully God, but he's fully human. And he didn't use some kind of supernatural understanding that they didn't understand. He said, no, listen, this is already built within the system you're trying to argue with. My encouragement to you today is that some of you might feel trapped. Um, you might feel that I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. My, my small business is at risk. I don't know what to do about income. I don't know what to do about health and my own anxiety or whatever is going on. And it just kind of seems like, what's, where's the wisdom? How do I move forward? What's the right direction? My encouragement to you is that we serve the God of all wisdom. That in this scenario, that seemed that there was no way out. Jesus is like, of course there's a way out. Because with God, there's nothing that's impossible. James 1, 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. So if you're struggling right now with the question, what do I do? Go to Jesus. Maybe it's not this or that. Maybe there's a third way. Maybe the Holy Spirit is going to give you an understanding that would, would not be there if you just sat down and wrote pros and cons and an Excel sheet and a whiteboard. We serve the God of all wisdom. He doesn't get trapped. There is no checkmate with God. There's always a way with him. J.I. Packer says this in his book, Knowing God. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is, in fact, the practical side of moral goodness. As such, it is found in its fullness only in God. He alone is naturally and entirely and invariably wise. Thirdly, and maybe most glaring in this story is the mercy of Jesus. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, um, the only time it says that a stoning of someone in this kind of scenario would take place was if someone was engaged or betrothed. That kind of colors the story. If they're bringing her on the chart that they should stone her, then based on the law of God, then this wasn't a prostitute. This wasn't someone who uh, kind of lived this lifestyle. This was someone who was already engaged. And I think that's important because I think it kind of humanizes this person that they have found themselves in a really awful, heartbreaking scenario. And in this moment, they're coming and they're furious. And again, we, we don't know all the other details that scripture leaves out. 
But what we know is that the shame that this woman would have felt already having been betrothed, already having a husband waiting for her, building his house, and then she's caught with another man. The amount of guilt and shame would have been crushing. And Jesus's response right here, as he draws in the ground, some whatever he's writing, they leave one by one, dropping their stones, and all that's left with, Je- with this woman is Jesus. And he looks at her and says, where are your accusers? So they're not here. And Jesus' response is, neither do I accuse you. Neither do I condemn you. And it's easy in that moment to think that, that Jesus just like, I'm gonna let this one slide. I would want to challenge you on that. I don't think Jesus is saying, I'm going to let this one slide. I think what Jesus is saying here is the penalty you actually deserve, I'm going to take that. The the consequences that your decisions have brought upon you, I'm going to take that on the cross. And again, if, if he's going up to the Mount of Olives around the time of the crucifixion, this is at the forefront of Jesus's mind. And for this moment to her dismiss her sin is tied up with a sense of, listen, I, you can walk away free because all of that's done away with because I'm gonna take that for you. What an amazing picture of the mercy of God. That's for you, that's for me. There's nothing going on in your life right now that Jesus can't say, neither do I condemn you because he has given us his righteousness. He purchased that for us on the cross. Ephesians 2, 3 through 10 says this, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. John Stott says the gospel is good news of mercy to the undeserving. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. You think about the scales of what's right and what's wrong and who's owed what and that deserves this. And the mercy of Jesus is symbolized by a cross. Jesus take it all. And we get to live with that freedom. Thomas Merton Speaking on the mercy of God says, there is not a flower that opens, not a seed that falls into the ground, not an ear of wheat that nods on the end of its stalk in the wind that does not preach and proclaim the greatness and the mercy of God to the whole world. Last thing, as you guys are watching this, um, that we see in Jesus is a shepherd's heart. At the very end, he has this comment. He says, go and leave your life of sin. He gives her a fresh start, but he also gives her some direction. And he kind of pleads with her in his mercy, says, you don't need to live like this. And I think for all of us, whether it's in repentance and leaving a pattern or decisions of sin, whether that's simply just, again, looking to him for what do I do, where do I go, is understanding that what we see in here, this, this tone that comes forth out of Jesus' mouth is a shepherd's heart. What we're going to find out later in a, couple, in a couple chapters is Jesus refers to himself, I'm the good shepherd, and my sheep know my voice. So practically, as we kind of end this um, session, is that you just begin to start understanding that the Jesus we serve and follow operates with a calm and a peace 
He operates with a wisdom above anything that we could muster up. And he operates from a place of mercy. And lastly, he's our good shepherd. And that's what we need right now. So here, practically, you know what I'd encourage you to do as we step into a 21-day reading challenge? Maybe for you guys should read Psalm 23 every other day. And that's what you read. And you read about your good shepherd. You read about how God leads us into places that we can't get to on our own. And even when we're in the, the darkest valley, he's still with us. And he gives us peace and comfort, uh, comforts us. Let's just do, I'm gonna pray. So wherever you are, whatever, however you're watching this, um, stop. Just pause. Maybe close your eyes if you need to. Um, and let's just ask the Jesus we just see here in John 8 to be so present to every one of us right now. Jesus, thank you that the calm, the wisdom, the mercy and the shepherding that you operate in is exactly what we need right now. It's exactly what that woman needed in her time of distress. And so Lord, I pray that we'd have a clear and more vibrant view of who you are. We welcome your peace, Holy Spirit, to come. Lord, I pray that as we look to you for these things, would we begin to um, be an example of those things? Would we be a presence of calm and of mercy and wisdom and shepherding to our family, friends, neighbors? Lord Jesus, not because we're great, but because we get to follow the great shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com.